Father, what an appropriate hymn for us to sing this morning on a weekend that we celebrate as Christians, your goodness to us. Father, we look about in the world and we see the glory of your creation all around us. We see that we serve a strong God, the great creator of the universe. And Father, when we sit at our tables and we eat the good food, we do not eat it, Father, without realizing that you delight in satisfying our stomachs. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. We have celebrated it this week, Father, in the birth of a new baby. We celebrate, Father, with Brad and Vicki Coolidge and the birth of that beautiful daughter that's been long awaited. We thank you for that. Father, we celebrate your goodness to us in the person of Jesus Christ, our great Lord and Savior. Without him, Father, we have no hope of eternal life. We celebrate your goodness. Thank you, Father, for your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we would pause now as your people who are part of a great nation that we love. We lift our country up to you today, Father, and we ask that, Lord, you take control of circumstances. And, Father, we commit we commit the coming days to you, and we trust, Father, that you are a sovereign God, and we rest in your care. We pray that you would guide us as a people. Father, move about our land, and we pray that revival would come to the people of God in America. Finally, Father, as we approach the preaching of the Word of God in that sacred time when we open your book and we study truth, we pray, Father, for power. We pray for clear preaching. And, Father, we pray that the Word of God would fall upon fertile ground. Lord, we would pray this morning for man, woman, or child that would be in this room who may not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We pray that this might be the day you call them to salvation. We commit that hour to you. We pray now as we take this offering that you would receive it. Lord, it is a symbolic of hearts that are thankful. It is yours. We pray that you would use it for the building of the kingdom of God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 112. Psalm 112. I might remind you, too, that uh, if you're here and you don't have a Bible, we always provide some Bibles back there on the ledge in the sound booth. You're welcome to. Get up even now and uh, use one of those one of those copies of the Word of God. Psalm 112. And let me just, before I read this chapter, we're going to read the entire chapter this morning. Let me just remind you something about this, the, the book of Psalms. You know, the Psalms are the Hebrew hymn book of ancient Israel. We could really divide the book. Each chapter in Psalms would fall into one of seven categories, but there are probably three main divisions in the book of Psalms. Uh, what I'm saying is the chapters would fall probably into one of these three main categories. One would be a hymn of praise or a hymn of joy. And that's when Israel was in right relationship with God. It would call for a hymn of praise. And then there are hymns of laments. That's when Israel entered periods where God was silent. Israel was distant from the Lord. Laments were in order, and that's why you'll have a psalm like Psalm 102, where the psalmist says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. That's a psalm of lament. And following that would be, a, um, when the laments were answered, there would be psalms of thanksgiving, like Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. So you have generally these three types of hymns or psalms. Psalms of praise or joy, psalms of lament, and then psalms of thanksgiving. 
We come to Psalm 112. In fact, Psalm 111 and 112 kind of go together because they're twin psalms. We have a, a psalm of praise. The psalmist begins with the great words, praise the Lord. And then mixed in this psalm of praise will be a little bit of thanksgiving. So it's an appropriate psalm to study on this holiday weekend. Read with me now as we begin Psalm 112, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness light dawns for the upright, for the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affairs with justice. Surely he will never be shaken. A righteous man will be remembered forever. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foes. And he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be lifted high in honor. The wicked man will see and be vexed. And he will gnash his teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. Now, the first two verses in this great psalm gives us really the fundamental principles of the blessed man. I want you to notice this morning that there are two characteristics mentioned in this first verse describing what the blessed man is like. And the first principle we see is that the blessed man fears the Lord. In fact, if you take the last verse of chapter 111, verse 10, it would read, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. And then the psalmist picks up in verse 1 of chapter 112 and expands this thought, and he says, Praise the Lord! Hallelujah! It begins with this great hymn of joy, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Now, gang, by some standards, I don't have a great deal of money or a lot of earthly possessions, but I have enough. And I've lived long enough that I've saved a little bit of money, and I've accumulated enough stuff to know, as well as many of you, that you cannot buy happiness. And the psalmist begins this great hymn of praise by giving us the secret to happiness. He says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. It's actually translated, happy is the man, or happy is the person who fears the Lord. And we'd get no argument from Solomon. In fact, he wrote an entire book on this subject. And Solomon, after having searched for happiness in the pursuit of knowledge, in thrills, and in dedicating himself to pleasure, and the, the, the gathering of material possessions, just the thought of a wasted life causes Solomon to cry out in despair. And he says this, here's the whole sum of the matter. He means sum all of life up, the whole reason for living. Here the conclusion of the matter, Solomon said, fear God and keep his commandments. Now we begin Psalm 112 with this concept, this characteristic of the blessed man with this concept of the idea of the fear of the Lord. 
The Bible uses this idea of the fear of the Lord in really two distinct ways. In fact, if you you were to just give a summary of the Bible, you'd find the concept of the fear of the Lord used over 60 times in the Bible. And when it's used with the fear of the Lord or the fear of God, it's usually used in one of two distinct ways. One is fear as anxious dread, like fear of punishment. I'm currently reading Peter Marshall's book, Sounding Forth the Trumpet. It's a history of the United States during the period of the 19th century when our land was, our nation was struggling with the issue of states' rights and the abolition of slavery. In chapter 25 of Peter Marshall's book, he entitles that chapter, The Wages of Fear. It begins that chapter with a one-word sentence, fear. And what Peter Marshall has concluded in all of this research preparing for this book, he says that it's po- if it were possible to run all the aspects of slavery through one giant computer, the key word that would surface most often, regardless of anyone's perspective, would be the word fear, fear of inflicted pain. Because Marshall concludes that the driving force that fueled the engine of slavery was the word fear. Now, guys, that's a valid concept. And it's a valid kind of fear that the Bible speaks of. A fear of anxious dread. That is, someone who's living their daily lives as subjects to God's impending wrath. It's a valid fear. But that's not the kind of fear that we as Christians are to live under. The Apostle Paul or the Apostle John says, because of the love of God and because that love of God has been made complete in us, that we are not to live in fear, but we are to live in confidence as we look forward to the day of judgment. There's another kind of fear the Bible talks about. And I submit to you this morning that it's the fear that the psalmist is using here when he says that blessed is the man who fears the Lord. It's a fear that has to do with honor or reverence. I believe this morning that that fear, that fear that has to do with reverence and awe for God, is the very soul of godliness. This fear focuses not upon the wrath of God, but upon the majesty and the holiness, the transcendent glory of God. That's why Psalm 111 and 112 are really twin psalms. Where are the roots of this fear of the Lord, we can ask? The psalmist would answer, from knowing that God provides food for those who fear Him, from knowing that His covenant is forever, from knowing that the works of His hands are faithful and just. But this reverence, this fear of God, this first characteristic of the blessed man is really only part of the equation. The psalmist continues. There's another characteristic about this blessed man. Not only does he fear the Lord, but the psalmist says that he delights in his commands. This man not only fears God, but he loves his word. Now here in one sentence is is a summary of the sermon today. If you're taking notes, here's a sentence you can write down. Here it is. Here's the formula that the psalmist is laying out for us today. Love of God, our fear of God, will drive us to the Word of God, the love of God, a love of the Word, which will produce in us the fruit of obedience that results in great delight. 
Now that was probably hard to write down, so let me, let me just give it to you in four words. Here are the four basic components of Psalm 112. Number one, love of God or fear of God, love of the Word, profound obedience, and delight. God, the Word, obedience, and delight. I want to show you a New Testament text that builds upon this principle. Look with me in James chapter 1. James chapter 1 builds upon this, this principle. You've heard this text probably. James chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 22. Now here's what James is doing. He's about to present to us this idea or the importance of being not merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And what James will do, he's about to give us two examples of being doers of the word using the rich simile of a mirror. Notice the first example, and it's a, really the first one's a negative example, verse 22. He says, now, brothers, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Now in this first example, which is a wrong example, what we see here is a man that get a, that's looking in a mirror. And what does he see when he looks in the mirror? And when you got up this morning and you stumbled into the bathroom and you looked in the mirror, what did you see? I know some of you saw an awful mess, and you know, how am I going to get this thing together before 9.30? But what you saw in that mirror, it can't fool you. What you saw in the mirror was the face that God gave you. And here's the man who looks into the mirror, and he sees the face of nature, the face that God gave him. And the mirror, again, cannot lie. Now, in this simile, in James here, the mirror represents the Word of God. Again, when we come to the Word of God and we look into this mirror of God's Word, what do we see? Well, we see two things. When we look into the Word of God, the first thing that we see is we see God. Because the Bible is, is the revelation of God to His people, to us. We see God and we notice that God is a holy and just God. But there's something else we see when we look into the mirror of God's Word. Not only do we see God, but we see ourselves as we really are. That's why Jeremiah could cry out, The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? That's why Isaiah would cry out when he, when he comes into the presence of God, Woe is me! So we look into the mirror of the Word of God, and we see God as He is, a holy God, and we see ourselves as we truly are. And notice in this, in this wrong example, there's a warning Here's the warning that James is giving to us. Sometimes we think we've accomplished what God has required of us by hearing the Word. But the truth is, unless the Word of God has permeated into our lives and changed us, it has not really entered us. Now, that's the wrong example. Notice in verse 25 the right example. Look what he says. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has learned, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. There's that word that we saw in the Psalms that we read this morning. Same word, just in the Greek, but translated virtually the same. In fact, it really means in the Greek, supremely blessed, 
happy in what he does. Now, here's, here's this second example. Here James is describing a man sort of who's looking over a mirror that's on a table and he pauses and he takes a penetrating look. And with intensity, he keeps on looking. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Oh, sometime last summer, I made a trip to Home Depot and that's one of my favorite places to shop. In fact, I, I think I've got an idea how we can make a, just become virtually wealthy overnight. Somebody ought to build a mall where there's a, there's a Home Depot on one end and a, maybe a Goldsmith's on the other, you know, and the husband and wife will both be happy. You could shop, you know, and then meet in the middle and have lunch. But I love to go to Home Depot, and when I get in trouble at Home Depot is when I go there without a list. If I don't have a list, I get in trouble. And one day, last summer, I went to Home Depot, didn't have a list, just wanted to go. And I just go up and down the aisles, and I'm looking for projects, you know, that I can do around the house. And that afternoon at Home Depot, I went down that aisle where they have the, uh, you know, that section where they have the landscaping lights. And uh, I was shopping there, and right on one of those end caps, it caught me. It was a special price, a 40-piece box of Malibu landscaping lights for 39 bucks. Folks, I, didn't have any, I don't have any landscaping lights. And I looked at that, and I picked up that box, and I said, how in the world can they sell a 40-piece landscaping kit for $39? I'd be a fool not to buy this. So I bought the Malibu landscaping lights. And I got home that day, and I got my regular outside chores done, and just excited about getting get those landscaping lights out because about dark, and they were going to come on, you know. And that was my plan for that Saturday. Late that afternoon, I got things done, and I got in the garage, and I opened that box, that 40-piece box of landscaping lights, and I realized, once I opened the box, why they could charge $39 for that 40-piece landscaping kit. Because that 40-piece Malibu landscaping kit was in 7,028 pieces. I mean, I had them scattered everywhere. And you know how I ended up putting that mess together? Here's how I did it. By the way, I didn't get it together that night. In fact, it took several nights, and I'd get that 40-piece kit open, and I'd scatter those 7,000 pieces across my den floor, and I had them spread out there in sections, and I'd sit in the floor, so help me, and I'd put my readers on and that six page of instructions, and I had to sit there night after night, and I'd read a little bit of instruction, and then I'd go apply it. I'd put this piece together. And then I'd go back, and I'd read a little bit more, and I'd put this next piece together. And I did that for night after night. And about six weeks later, I finally got that thing together and installed. Now, here's the point, gang, that I'm going to. This is really what James is teaching us here about the Word of God, being doers of the Word. Here is a man who keeps on looking and then doing, and looking and then doing, looking and then doing. And the result is profound obedience. Now, the psalmist understands this. Look in verse 9 of Psalm 112. He understands this principle that James is teaching. Verse 9, the psalmist says, this is the result of the righteous man, this blessed man who is a lover of his word. Verse 9, he has scattered his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, here's the practicality of the Christian life. In essence, what the psalmist is reminding us here is that piety 
without pity is worthless. Simply being a hearer of the word without action is foolish on our part. Now, once again, here's the principle, Psalm 112. Knowledge followed by obedience. I'm just rewarding it. Knowledge followed by obedience, the Bible teaches us, will bring more knowledge. That is, love of the Word will drive us to the Word, and love of God's Word will produce the fruit of obedience that will result in great delight. Now, I don't know if you caught this or not, but I believe this is a principle taught in the Word of God, that knowledge followed by obedience will bring more knowledge. Now, there's a built-in warning for us as Christians here. There's a converse to this. That is, truth acted on brings more truth. But failure to respond to truth will ultimately result in the loss of truth. Truth acted on brings more truth. But failure to respond to truth will ultimately result in the loss of truth. Now, I want to make this application to Christians a minute because... Now, we're fortunate here at Grace to have the faithful preaching and teaching of the Word of God. We're exposed to it weekly here. And there is a built-in danger for us of simply being doers of the Word. I mean, hearers of the Word and not doers of the Word. Guys, if I had the time this morning to tell you, I could give you an example. In fact, I could give you an example of someone very close to me, a relative of mine that I love dearly, that has, has lived her life without paying attention to this biblical principle, and it finally caught up with her. Now, I'm going to tell you how Satan works in our lives, gang. He doesn't cause a major explosion. When sometimes it happens that way. You know, a major trauma comes, and, and then we, we just fail in the Christian life, and we just give up and walk away. Sometimes it happens that way. But more, than, more often than not, it happens this way. It's like a, a small fracture. In, down in the, the bowels of a great dam. Not a, not a great explosion, but a small fracture takes place. And over a period of years, that fracture begins to erupt. And one day, the dam comes down. And I've spoken to professing Christians who've been raised in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, exposed to the faithful preaching and teaching of God's Word, that have no real concept of truth in biblical principle. They've lost it over the years. The dam is ruptured. And I'll tell you how Satan operates, guys. He will suck you dry. He'll do it mentally. He'll destroy you physically. He'll destroy you financially. He'll destroy you emotionally, spiritually. He'll drain you dry. And I have proof of it. I've seen it. The warning here is truth acted on brings more truth, but failure to respond to truth will result in the loss of truth. Now I want you to look in verse 2 and 3 as we kind of move toward wrapping this up. Verse 2 and 3, let's, let's read that again. The psalmist says, His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Now, gang, if you were a Jew and you're reading this psalm, right now your heart would begin to resonate, for here the psalmist puts the fruits of success in Old Testament terms. He thinks in terms, the Jew would think in terms of the, of the Old Covenant. He would think in terms of many descendants and wealth and honor and land, possessions. 
The psalmist sees the descendants of this man, his house full of wealth and riches, and he remembers the covenant of God. Now, now don't misunderstand, because the psalmist is not celebrating here the human ingenuity or hard work and enterprise. He's celebrating the goodness of God. And when Israel remembered the covenant of God, they were reminded of more than houses and land. The Jew was reminded they were learning that only God could satisfy the longings of their heart. Okay, in a sense, what we have here in Psalm 112 is a lesson in the nature of true obedience. You see, what we've learned is that true obedience is really not merely obeying laws or rules. I mean, that is a part of the Christian life. As we become lovers of God, we become lovers of His law. But it's more than that. We discover in the Word of God that true obedience is a surrendering of my will to the authority of another person. And in the case of the Christian, it's the surrendering of our wills to the authority of Jesus Christ. That is, we move under the blessed yoke of Christ. Now, why is that possible? Well, the psalmist would argue here because God is a trustworthy God. In fact, God has our best interest at heart. He delights in satisfying His children. We could say that not only is God good, but He can do nothing but good. And here the psalmist is describing the heart's free response and gratitude for love of God. Now, when I'm studying texts like this, what I like to do is step back and then look at it as a whole, as a complete picture, and see if I'm really seeing what the writer has for us. If we were to step back this morning and look at Psalm 111 and 112 together, here's what we would see. In Psalm 111, this hymn of praise, the psalmist declares the glory of God. As one who looks to the heaven and sees the brightness of the sun, the psalmist begins with, Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all of my heart. That's Psalm 111. Well, as Psalm 112 speaks of the blessedness of the righteous man, it too begins with praise to God. He begins with, Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Now, think of the relationship like this. As the moon reflects the brilliance of the sun, so the righteous man reflects the brilliance or the brightness and glory of the Heavenly Father. So God is praised for the manifestation of His glory seen in His people. So when the psalmist says, wealth and riches are in His house and His righteousness endures forever, He's not extolling man. He's giving honor and praise to God for grace, which is manifested in the sons of God. You get the picture? We become a reflection of the glory of God. Now what a better time in Thanksgiving season to give true praise and thanksgiving. Carl and I were driving in this morning. We saw a church marquee. We're not really hip on church marquees because most of them just have mere foolishness up there. In fact, if I see another church marquee that says God enters an email, I think I'm going to have to take it down. But this one was good. We saw one this morning. It said, Thanksgiving is a way of life. Now, that's true for the Christian. Thanksgiving ought to be a way of life because all true thanksgiving proceeds from the heart that has received the blessings of God. By the way, you do see, don't you, that even this ability to fear God in this good way, even the fear of the Lord, 
is a gift of God's grace. That's a gift. Now look, I want you to see. I want you to see the Christ-centered focus of Psalm 112. The Christ-centered focus. It's right there, just jumping out all all over. The great culmination, the great finale of God's blessing upon His people, is in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to this text. One of my favorite in the New Testament. Don't turn there. Ephesians chapter one. After giving just a few brief words of introduction, Paul just bellows that with this great, almost like a, another hymn of praise. Paul says, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in his heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? With clear thinking, precise words, the Apostle Paul describes to the Ephesians and he describes to us what we have in Christ. And later, I think it's chapter 3, he coins a new phrase. Paul describes it as the unsearchable riches of Christ. You've got to get this, guys. But wherever Paul preached, he was faithful to preach Christ's death and resurrection. Corinth, at Ephesus, at Philippi. Christ's death and resurrection. Now here's a man that has written the majority of the New Testament and no other place in all of his writings does he use this phrase. It's as if Paul wanted to amplify the message and he calls it the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I think Paul meant three things. I think he had three things in mind when he coined this phrase, when he said the unsearchable riches of Christ. Number one, I think Paul had in mind what Christ did for us then I think he had in mind what Christ is doing for us right now. And I think Paul looked into the future and he saw what Christ will do for us one day in that coming glorious day. The then, the then has to do with Christ's death on the cross. When the God-man, Jesus Christ, went to the cross. That is, if Jesus had not been God, he could not have saved us. If he had not been man, he could not have been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But when Jesus Christ went to the cross, infinite power and infinite mercy met on the cross. Gang, we must not forget the cross of Christ. That's the then. But what about right now? Well, Paul understood that presently Christ lives for us at the right hand of God. Again, Christ is not sitting, sitting idly by while we struggle in the process of sanctification. In fact, He is actively involved Christ is actively involved in the continuing restoration of His people. He is our mediator, the Scripture says. He is our great high priest, our wonderful, compassionate shepherd. That's right now. But what about the future? When you think of the future, when you think of the unsearchable riches of Christ, you have to think of the future. Now guys, think about it this morning. I don't think we, we think enough about the future. In fact, we don't, we, don't, uh, we don't even pray. Our prayers are not ringing with confidence because we're confident of the future. I think many of you, like me, have been really just fascinated in the past 10 days with the presidential election. I've, just, I've been keeping track every night with a countdown in Florida. And, you know, things have begun to, begun to escalate and tempers are flaring and the, it seems that the people are getting impatient and the, the thing has gone into the, the legal judicial system and the country is like sitting on the edge of their seat. 
wondering who will be the next president. And I, I'm like you, I'm fascinated with it. In fact, guys, um, I think we ought to be interested in who our next president is going to be. I mean, when, when thousands of unborn babies are killed every year, we ought to be interested in who our next president is going to be. But in all the intensity and all the fretting that's going on the last 10 days, I can tell you I've not lost one night's sleep over the future destiny of the presidency. You know why? Because of the future aspect of the unsearchable riches of Christ. That is, in God's great covenant scheme, He has already written the final chapter. He's not surprised by anything. God, in fact, has shown us how it's all going to end. And then He says, just so you can trust Me, I'm going to prove it to you by My very acts. In fact, one of His names, the name Yahweh, means, watch Me. I'll prove to you that I am God by the way I act. Guys, we can rest with confidence tonight because of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now the psalmist goes on to say, as we look in the last couple of verses, the psalmist closes with these words. In the end, the wicked man will see and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. Now does that mean that our final celebration as God's people will be a celebration of revenge? No. It will be a celebration of the goodness of God. Because the psalmist, the psalmist said, Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in Him. Now just, just to review as we close. The four components of Psalm 112. Fear of God. Lovers of the Word. Profound obedience great delight. For truly, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in His commands. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the Word of God that is rich and powerful. We understand that, it is, that Lord, is, has the ability to change a sinful heart to a righteous heart. Father, we thank you for your grace this morning that we as your people who once had a heart of stone now truly have a heart of flesh. And Father, it is our desire to become greater lovers of truth, lovers of your word. Lord, we understand from your word this morning that true happiness is found in becoming lovers, fearers of God and lovers of his word. Lord, we long to be men and women who delight in your commands. Lord, make it so. I pray that you'll change lives this morning through the preaching of your word. Lord, I would finish this morning once again with this prayer. Lord, save the lost. I pray this morning in Christ's name.